Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Kings 20. 1 Kings 20, and uh, we've had some discontinuity, but uh, I, we're going to do a, a brief overview of these three word wars in 1 Kings 20. This I love this chapter, it's a great chapter, and it's a very practical one. And so, as you're there in 1 Kings 20... If you notice in your notes, it says, what is 1 Kings 20 all about? It's a war of words rooted in a war of worldviews. And that's what you're in every day. Every day, you are bombarded by words that are rooted in a worldview that is opposed to Scripture. And so the, to the degree that you're in the Word of God on a daily basis, you're powered up for this, but the war is there. It's a war of words. You hear it in entertainment. You hear it in social media. You hear it in the workplace. Uh, you hear it in your own mind. The devil is constantly trying to get our thoughts off of God and on an opposing worldview. And so everything in this chapter, we said, was about a war of words. So let's look at, we're going to move through the first two because we've already taught through that. You can go to wearelifebridge.com and get all the messages from our class as well as the worship service. You can get the notes, you can re-listen, and I'd encourage you to do that. So let's look at Word War 1 is a war of words between two kings. Between two kings. So this is the the first WW. One, and then we're going to see WW2, and then we're going to see WW3, Word War 3, and that's where we want to concentrate. So let's look at Word War 1 between two kings, the brutal bully Ben-Hadad and the disloyal apostate Ahab. Uh, we were at camp, and the speaker spoke on 1 Kings 18, and uh, and he had uh, he had Ahab down in Jerusalem. Ahab is not the king of the southern kingdom of Judah; he's the king of the northern kingdom, and he's up in Samaria. And so, King Ben Hadad is this bully that has a mighty army to back up his boastful words. And basically, he keeps saying, Ben-Hadad says, Ben-Hadad says. He acts like he's a god walking upon the earth, and what he says is going to happen. And if you doubt it, I've got a big, bad army to back up my words. And poor, weakling King Ahab, he's got boastful words too, but he doesn't have the army to back it up. And sometimes we're the same way, right? We can boast of much, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And sometimes we have the physical strength and resources to back up our words. But ultimately, we all are King Ahab. Because ultimately, we all will encounter circumstances in life that are bigger and badder than our own strength. Alright? And so that's the idea. It's in verses 2 through 21. And the point is this. Worldly power boasts in physical strength. Worldly power boasts in physical strength, physical resources, material resources. The point is, that which we can buy and accumulate, this is what I boast in. But, Word War 1 is not one by physical strength, it's won by the word of the Lord that rules over all. 
So if you would read verses 2 through 21, you're going to see that by His spoken word, the Lord is revealing Himself to be initially two things, all-knowing and all-powerful. Because it's Word War One is won by the Word of the Lord that rules over all. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. So after all this boasting, you know, I'm going to crush you to where you're going to be dust. And there's not even going to be enough left of you for each of my soldiers to have a handful of your crushed dust. And Ahab says, oh yeah, you and whose army? Oh yeah, the army that's surrounding me, you know. And he says, and he says, uh, he says, don't count your chickens before they hatch. You know, don't talk about like you're someone who has taken off your sword before you even put it on. So they're all boasting, but we haven't heard from God yet. And so in verse 13, here's what happens. A prophet comes. Now behold, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel. Behold, God is about to speak is the point of that. Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? See, God is all-knowing. God knows what you're going through. Right now, God knows what you're going through. He knows if you're overwhelmed. He knows if you're outnumbered, outmanned, outmaneuvered. He knows what you're going through. But notice what he says. Behold, not only is God about to speak, but God's about to act. I will deliver them into your hand today. I don't care how big that army is because I'm all-powerful. And I'm all-knowing. And my word will conquer all. Okay? I will deliver them into your hand today, and you, and that's in singular, you, Ahab, you, apostate Ahab, who doesn't believe in me, who has uh, uh, turned away and fallen away from me, you who don't deserve my grace, you shall know that I am the Lord. Isn't God gracious? Okay? Number two, Israel wins, WW1, but the king of Aramea, of the uh, uh, Arameans, King Ben-Hadad, escapes. He escapes while King Ahab kills all the chariots and horses. Now, this is interesting. This tells us something about Ahab. What is he trusting in? He's not trusting in the Lord because if he was trusting in the Lord, he would have killed the Lord's enemy. But he let the Lord's enemy, the enemy of the Lord and the enemy of his people, escape. And what is he focused on? He's killing, he's destroying the tanks. He's destroying the physical strength. He's like, I don't care if this unbelieving enemy of my people escapes, this this rejecter and rebel against my God, I don't care if he escapes, I'm focused on the material. I'm focused on physical strength. And if I can kill all of his horses, burn all of his chariots, then I'm okay. Well, that's spiritual stupidity. Why? What did he just learn? He didn't have enough horses. To conquer. He was outnumbered and he didn't win by having greater strength. How did he win? He won by the word of the Lord. Are you, do you see the idea here? And this is, the, this is the second time that we've seen Ahab put the focus on material things over people. 
Because remember, during the famine, he took his servant Obadiah and he said, Hey, look, we got to go find water. Not because my people are dying, but because my horses, my military strength, my power, that which I trust in. And just to throw this out, you know, this past week, how much have you worried about the lost people around you versus your material resources? Something to think about. See what I'm saying? What you trust in is also what you care about. And when you care about the things of God, then you're concerned about people and getting people connected with God. But when you're concerned about the things of this world, then you're busy about your job, you're busy about your family. I'm the same way. And we need to you know, be aware of that. And so the king escapes. And yet the battle was won. You see, King Ahab has failed to execute him, which was his righteous duty as God's representative king. But worse, he's failed to learn that the Lord is the I am God. But the Lord is a gracious God. So he's going to give both the Israelites and the Arameans another opportunity to learn. Not only does the word of the Lord rule over all, but the Lord of the word. And that's what WW2 is about. Let's look at that. WW2 is a war of words between gods. So the first one was between kings. Now it's between the one true God and the false gods of the Aramean. And we've gone from the conflict, you know, uh, surrounded and who's going to win this war. And the focus now is on the council. Whose theology theology is going to win the day? So notice in your notes, the small God theology of Ben-Hadad's servants versus the big God theology of the Lord's prophets. So here's what you learn in verses 22 through 34. Here's the second war. It's in verses 22 through 34. And you're going to see that foolish theology is rooted in a little God who rules over certain people and places, but wise theology is rooted in a big God whose word rules over all. So that's the idea. The focus shifts from the battlefield of conflict to the back rooms of counsel. Okay, and and only God knows what everybody is saying. So let's look at it. Here's the point. Worldly wisdom trusts in small God theology. The wisdom of the world is often religious. The problem is the God that they trust in is a small God, small G, who only has power over certain things and certain people. Worldly wisdom trusts in a small God theology. And what we see, number one, is Ben-Hadad's servants speak foolish words rooted in small God theology. We see this in verses 23 through 25. Let's look at that. Look in your Bible at verse 23 and let's, let's read along together. Now the servants of the king of Aram said to him... Now notice right there, verse 23. This guy's been humbled. Before it was, I say, I say, I say. He's not talking anymore. He's been humbled, but he's got bad advisors. He's got bad, bad counselors who have small God theology. 
And so here's what they say. Their gods are gods of the mountains. See, that's a small god theology. Their god only rules in mountains. Their gods are like our gods. We have to have a god for the mountains, a god for the plains, a god for workplace, a god at church, and a god for family, a god for my entertainment. We have all these little gods. Therefore they were stronger than we, but rather let us fight them in the plain. Surely we shall be stronger than they. Verse 24, do this thing. Remove the kings, each from his place, and put captains in their place. He's saying, look, the problem is we fought in the wrong place, and we had the wrong people in charge. And then he says, and muster an army like the army you have lost. Ding, 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 ding. A big army didn't win the first time. An equally big army is not going to win the next time. Foolishness. So get a big army. See, the problem was location, not the size of an army, but that's not true. Horse for horse, chariot for chariot. So now notice, Ahab wanted to wipe out their military. Apparently, he didn't do a good enough job. They're going to be able to muster an army, horse for horse, chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And so... They, this is small God theology, and basically here's what they're saying. So look at your notes. We lost last time, but we'll win next time because they have small gods like ours. And think of what they're saying. They're, they're saying this about Israel's God. They aren't, and of course they think Israel has more than one you know, God. They're projecting their own foolishness. They aren't almighty. Why? We're going to gather the same size army. See, a big army can defeat their God. Their God's not almighty. Number two, they aren't all-knowing. See, we got this secret plan, but wait. Verse 22, we already were told, look at verse 22, God already knows what they're planning a year before. He knows what they're going to plan a year before they know it. But a year later, they're like, shh, we have this plan. They don't know what we're doing. Their God isn't all-knowing. We can pull this off. No, we have a God who knows all. And then finally, we have a God who is all present. We're going to fight on the plains this time and not on the mountains. No, we got a God who rules over all because he's all-knowing, he's almighty, and he's all-present. So number two, Ben-Hadad foolishly trusts in small God theology. Look at verse 25, the end of verse 25. And he... Listened to their voice and did so. Remember, this is a war of words. So, who you listen to will determine your spiritual success in life. It's who you listen, it's whose voice are you listening to? Are you getting up? Am I getting up each morning and listening to the voice of the Lord through His Word? And am I letting His Word guide me through my day? And when I face trials, do I go to His Word for counsel? Or do I listen to my friend, my co-worker with small God theology? Do I go on social media and get advice and counsel from the vast wisdom of the Internet? Not a good place to go. Go to the Word of God. 
Go to us as your pastors. Go to the family of God and, and to wise people. Okay, so here's what happens. What happens? Word War II is won by the Lord of the Word. So the focus in the first battle is the Word of the Lord. Okay? But in this one, the focus is on the Lord of the Word. Because listen... Words are only as good as the person speaking them, right? So, the Bible is not a magic book that if I memorize a verse or paint it on my wall of my house, uh, good fairy dust from God will be sprinkled over everything that happens in my life. This isn't a magic book. See, Ahab was quite content for God's Word to give him victory, but he wasn't ready to submit to the Lord of the Word. So there's a lot of Christians that value the Word of the Lord who don't submit to the Lord of the Word. Are you seeing the difference here? So, you know, I hope you brought your Bibles. I hope you read your Bibles. But reading and carrying the Bible and loving the Bible and even defending the Bible is nothing if you don't know and submit to the Lord of the Word. Does that make sense? Alright, so, what happens? The prophet speaks wise words rooted in big God theology. And that's in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Then the man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel. Okay, it's always good when God's man... Come speaks God's word. And so here's what he says. Thus says the Lord, because the Arameans have said, the Lord is a God of the mountains, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give you, I will give all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know, this time it's plural, you, the Israelites and the Arameans, all the world will know that I am the Lord. Now notice what's happening. He's speaking a big God theology. Why? What's he saying? He's saying this. The I am God. You're going to know that God is the Lord. The I am God. The promise keeping God. Now here's the idea. Because the Arameans have said. How does he know that? How does God know what they said? Because he is all knowing. So he's saying look. They're in, they're in Aram, you're in Samaria, you don't know what's coming at you. I'm going to tell you what's going to come at you in a, in, a, in a year in advance. But more importantly, I know exactly all that they've said. I am all-knowing. Number two, I am the God, I, I am the God who is all-present. They have said this, the Lord is a God of the mountains, but He is not a God of the valleys. They got me wrong. I'm Lord of mountains, valleys. Streams, are you going through a valley right now? God's Lord of it. Are you going through struggles right now? God's Lord of it. Are you facing opposition at work? God is Lord of it. He's all present. And then third, I am the God who is all powerful. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude in your hand. So again, I just want to, I want to apply as we go through this. Do you have small God theology or do you have big God theology? Do you live like you have a big God or a small God? 
When you go through valleys, is your God still big? When you're on a mountaintop and everything's going good and you got resources and bills are getting paid and you got savings in your account, is God still big? And when you're just going through the rut of the routine, is your God still big? Is He all-knowing? Is He all-present? Is He all-powerful? Well, the Lord of the Word is indeed that God. So here's the deal. I'm always surprised at what godly people who have been taught sound doctrine will still listen to. They'll still listen to false teachers on TV or on streaming or on podcasts. Listen, you want to listen to people who have big God theology. Okay? That is God-centered, Bible-based, Christ-exalting, local church-affirming. That's who you want to listen to. Okay, and by God's grace, that's what you get here at LifeBridge. Now, here's what happens. Even though we have a big God, He wants to use us in the process. So look at number two. Godly wisdom prepares for battle by trusting in spiritual strength more than physical strength. And that's the advice He gets in verse 22. Look at verse 22. This big God who knows what's coming who can conquer it and overcome it, tells King Ahab, then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Go, strengthen yourself and observe and see what you have to do. For at the turn of the year, the king of Aram will come up against you. So here's what he's saying to him. And we talked about this in the previous lesson. But verse 22 is the key to this whole chapter. It's the key to all these word wars. And that's this. You strengthen yourself in the big God and in His theology. You strengthen yourself in the Lord. You spend day by day by day preparing your heart for the spiritual conflicts that God knows is coming, but you don't. Are you with me? So here's how you prepare. You concentrate in Scripture strengthening yourself in who your God is instead of worrying about your circumstances. I could say more, but we must move on. Number three, Israel wins WW2 in ways that remind us of the Battle of Jericho, but once again, Ben-Hadad escapes. Uh Uh-oh, that's bad. Ben-Hadad's supposed to be killed. He's God's enemy. He keeps escaping. Why? Because Ahab, uh, King Ben-Hadad keeps escaping because King Ahab is not fully obedient to the Lord. So look at verse 29. Here's what happens. There's echoes of Jericho. So they camped one day, uh, they camped one over against the other seven days. Remember the battle of Jericho? They circled the city how many times? Seven times and the walls fell. Well, here they're waiting seven days. And it came about on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the sons of Israel killed of the Arameans 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. It is a blowout. Why? Because the word of the Lord and the Lord of the word is fighting on his people's behalf. But notice what happens. Verse 30 
But the rest fled to Aphek into the city, a nearby city, and the wall fell on 27,000 men who were left. So this little remnant of unbelievers escape and they hide in the city thinking, hey, physical strength, we're behind these walls. They can't get me. I'm behind these walls. And without an army, with God's sovereign providence, the wall falls on them. Jericho, seven times around. And what did the walls do? They fell. What is God trying to say to Israel? Look, I'm the God who got you into the promised land, and I can keep you in the promised land. And you conquered this land by my word. And you will conquer it and continue to conquer it by my word. But if you disobey my word, I already promised that if you disobey my word, then I'm going to I'm going to discipline you and put you into exile. So he's trying to remind them that I am the Lord of Here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to remind Israel, I'm the Lord of your salvation, but I'm also the Lord of condemnation. See, my word, I rule over both of these. And my word is a word of salvation, but it's also a word of condemnation. So you have a choice. Are you going to trust me or are you going to disobey me? Because it doesn't matter. My word rules over all. See, we kind of, we, there's a lot of bad teaching going around among God's people that somehow He's just the Lord of salvation and we can sin and there are no consequences. That uh, unbelievers don't really go to hell. They might go for a little time, but they don't stay there because the Lord wouldn't do that. No, He, but we need to realize both these are true. Because He's the Lord of all. Okay? Now, number three, uh, or I guess we've already done that. So here's what happened. Verse 30. Look at verse 30. So the army's wiped out, but the king, the evil, unbelieving king, is still alive. Notice verse 30. And Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city into an inner chamber. Now, here's what I want you to see. The bad guy escapes again. But notice but he is foolishly trusting in small God theology. Look at verse 30. See, there's so much in the Word of God. Just that half of a verse is filled with small God theology, and here's why. Here's this guy's thinking. I'm going to hide so no one knows where I am. But, what, but we have a God who is all-knowing. Secondly, I'm going to hide where no one can see me. <coughs> in those days, an inner room is important. Why? Because an inner room has no windows. It was the safest, most secure, most secret place you could hide. But we have a God who is not, all, not only all-knowing, but He's all-present. So when you and I look around, make sure no one's looking and then sin, who's always seeing us? The Lord. See, sin's done in darkness, not in light. Sin is done, typically, where others can't see us, but we forget that there's nowhere to hide, that He can't see you. And then, look at, finally, what is He doing? 
He wants to escape this small God and live to see another day. And he forgets that God is all-powerful. Look, Ben-Hadad, there's no place you can go. There's no place you can hide. That God is not power. He already made a wall fall on the remaining part of your armies. He could make this inner room fall collapse in a moment, right? But this guy's got small God theology. And, he, and, and here's what I want you to see. Please listen. How you view God impacts how you and I act on a moment-by-moment daily basis. So every day we're either operating out of a small God or a big God theology. All right. Now, King Ahab fails to execute Ben-Hadad because he too is foolishly trusting in small God theology. So let's look at verses 31 through 34. So the evil king is hiding. Verse 31, his servants said to him, By the way, how has their advice gone so far? Not good, but he's still going to listen to him. Behold now! We, little men, are going to speak. We have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Well, that's because they have a merciful God. Instead of thinking about kings, they need to think about this merciful God. Please, let us put on sackcloth on our loins, ropes on our heads. These are all symbols of humility. We're submitting. We've lost. We're seeking mercy. Perhaps he will save your life. Verse 32. So they girded sackcloth on their loins, they put ropes on their heads, and they came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant, Ben-Hadad, says. First of all, see, Ben-Hadad started this chapter saying, You're my servant. He's been humbled. He's been defeated. Your servant, Ben-Hadad, says, Please let me live. And that's the very thing God did not want to have happen. Please let me live. And he said... And he is Ahab. Is he still alive? He's my brother. This guy is spiritually corrupt and bankrupt. And yet, he's also speaking truth. Why? Because he's an apostate. You see, birds of a feather flock together. You go to camp, and young people find each other out. And the saddest thing about camp is when you see lost kids connecting with Kids that profess to be saved, and they're not connecting over Christ. They're connecting because their hearts are the same. Are you with me? And that's what's happening here. This apostate who should be a believer in Yahweh says, Oh, pagan king, you're my brother. Verse 33, Now the men took this as an omen. Yeah, I would too. And quickly catching his word said, Your brother, Ben-Hadad. Okay, we were like your servant. Oh, the door is open. Your brother, Ben-Hadad. And then he said, Ahab said, Go, bring him. And then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he took him up into the chariot. Remember, his symbol of physical strength. Come. I'm mighty, you're not. I will show mercy to you. Verse 34, Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father I will restore, and you shall make streets for yourself in Damascus as my father made in Samaria. Ahab said, I will let you go with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. Ahab turns his back on the covenant with the Lord and makes a covenant with an unsaved, unbelieving, 
unbelieving enemy of God and His people. Nothing could be more unloving. He's not showing love to this guy. And he's not showing love to God, and he's not showing love to God's people. He needed to slay him then and there. Well, where do we go? Here's the bottom line for WW2. The Lord of the Word rules over both salvation and condemnation. Ahab is rejecting that. Ahab now is an enemy of God. There's WW3 on the horizon. Let's look at it. World War III is a war of words over complete obedience. Complete obedience. So this is where everything has been driving. The point is, does you, do you have a faith that obeys the Lord completely? Or are you like Ahab? I'll obey him here, but I'll disobey him here. And he's a God of salvation and there won't be consequences. Okay, makes sense? So here, here, here's, here's the deal. The, here's the war. It's over complete obedience of the loyal versus partial obedience of the disloyal. The Lord of the Word rules over all, therefore all must obey His Word completely. Here we have a review of these battles. History is His story. The spiritual combat of Word War One taught us the Word of the Lord rules over all. WW2 taught us the Lord of the Word rules over all. And WW3 is about spiritual commitment. If the Word and the Lord rules over all, then we ought to obey all of His Word. Does that make sense? So you see how this is progressing? Wow, God's Word rules. That's because the Lord who spoke it rules. But if His Word rules and He rules, then I ought to obey everything that He says. And that's the point of the end of this chapter. So let's look at it. First thing I want you to see is this. If the Lord of the Word rules over all, then all must obey His Word. All must obey His Word. Let's look at 1 Kings 35-38. through 38. It's a weird little thing. Look at look at verse 35. Now, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to another. So one of God's prophet is speaking to another one of God's prophet and says this. And he says it by the word of the Lord. So when he speaks, he's speaking God's word. Please strike me. So, you know, I'm coming up to Aaron. I'm saying, Aaron, you and I are prophets. The Lord has spoken to me. He's told me to tell you to hit me. I should probably pick someone different because I think Aaron just might do that. But Aaron is a prophet of the Lord, but he's thinking, instead of asking the Lord, did you say this? He's just thinking, I'm not going to hit one of God's prophets. That doesn't make sense. God's a God of love. I'm not going to hit him. But this is what the word of the Lord said. Hit me. And so Aaron is, I think, a true prophet. We don't know because why? He doesn't obey and he says, I'm not going to hit you. And so how does the prophet respond? 
He refused to strike him. Verse 36, then the the true prophet said to him, Because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, behold, God's about to act. As soon as you have departed from me, a lion will kill you. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion found him and killed him. Why is this weird story? I thought Ahab's the apostate. You know, God's prophets are... Be- oh, wait a minute, what's the point? If the w- Lord of the Word rules over all, then all must obey His Word, no exceptions. That includes even Aaron, the true prophet. That means obeying the Word when it doesn't make sense. If it's found in Scripture. Now, we don't... Listen to people who come up to us and say, thus saith the Lord. We listen to people who say, the Bible says, right? And you find it in the Bible. But when you find it in the Bible, and you've studied it, and you've interpreted it, and you know that's what the Lord is saying, then we obey it. And to not obey it will have consequence. So here's two lessons I want you to learn. Well, first of all, if the Lord who speaks rules over all, then everyone, everyone, everyone must obey Him, no exceptions. So here's two lessons. These verses, 35 through 38, or let's read the rest of 37. Then he found another man and said, Please strike him. And the man struck him, wounding him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. This guy got brutally hit, but he found someone who was obedient. So here's the lessons. These are lessons... For loyal, for the loyal remnant. Here's the lesson. Number one, you reveal your heart by obeying His Word no matter what. You, you, how do you discern if someone is a part of the loyal remnant? They obey this book no matter what. How do you know if you're a part of the loyal remnant? You've placed your faith in the Lord, therefore you obey this book no matter what. Make sense? Pretty powerful lesson. We reveal our hearts are united with the Lord's remnant by obeying His word no matter the cost. Number two, there are always consequences to partial obedience. There are always consequences even for God's loyal remnant. See, just because Aaron was a true prophet, when he disobeyed, the lion ate him. Now, I think this guy... More than likely, he was a true believer. He's just disobedient. I think we're going to see him in heaven. And you're going to say, wow, what was that like being eaten by a lion? He's going to say, it wasn't good. But you know what I learned? Partial obedience is still disobedience. And there's consequences if you're a believer. That's a powerful lesson. Partial obedience is a peril that plagues us all and results in partial blessing at best and more often eternal cursing. Here's the thing. There's a lot of professing believers that are playing this partial obedient game. And here's the danger in that. They may not be truly saved at all. And if they are saved, they're getting partial blessing. It's just not the way to... Make sense? Okay? And hey, this is a temptation for all of us, okay? 
You know, I've got my areas where I'm going to obey. I've got areas where I'll sacrifice to obey. And then I'll think there's enough of that to outweigh my little disobedience over here. Dumb, Chris. Dumb thinking. Small God theology thinking. Because He's the Lord of this little area that I'm being disobedient in. Okay. But there's more to here. So it's not only a lesson for the loyal, it's a lesson for the disloyal. Look at verse 39. This prophet is bandaged up. He's waiting for Ahab. Verse 39. As the king passed by, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle. The battle just took place. And behold, a man turned aside and brought a man to me, brought a prisoner to me and said, Guard this man. If for any reason he is missing, then your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver, which was a huge amount of money. Verse 40, while your servant was busy here and there, see, I wasn't focused on the Lord. I wasn't focused on being obedient. I was, I was distracted by many things, killing chariots and horses, for example. And the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself has decided it. In other words, you're going to die because you let your prisoner go. Uh-oh, we have a, a, uh, 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 a prophet Nathan moment. Thou art the man type thing. He just condemned himself. Look at verse 42, uh, verse 41. Then he hastily took the bandage away from his eyes. The king of Israel recognized him that he was of the prophets. And the prophet said to Ahab, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life, your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house, sullen and vexed, bitter and angry, and came to Samaria. Two lessons for the disloyal. Okay, here's the lessons. Well, first of all, here, here's the principle. All of the word must be obeyed. All of the word must be obeyed. That's the point. If the word that is spoken rules over all, then every command, every command, every command must be obeyed. No exceptions. So here's the lessons for the disloyal. Number one, you fail to completely obey... You fail to completely obey His Word for one of two reasons. Either your heart is not fully surrendered or it has never been conquered. Your heart is either not fully surrendered or it's never been conquered. So every one of us needs to leave here today with this thought. There's areas where I'm partially obedient. Is it because I haven't surrendered those areas in my heart? Or is it because I've never been born again? That's the question. In what areas of your life are you choosing partial obedience over total obedience? Is this evidence that your heart is not fully surrendered? Or has it never really been conquered by the Lord? And then number two, you reveal the true condition of your heart by how you respond to the spoken word. You see, every time you hear the word taught, preached, every time you read it, every time I read it, how I respond to it reveals the true condition of my heart. Look at verse 43 again. God has just 
laid down a severe judgment on this disobedient king. And here's his heart response. So the king of Israel went to his house bitter and angry. So here's the question. What does your response to God's word on a daily basis reveal about your heart condition? And listen, this is the value of reading. The more you read this book, the more you find areas that I need to surrender my heart to the Lord. So one of two things are going to happen. Either I'm going to keep this book closed because that's very uncomfortable, or I'm going to surrender my heart, or I'm going to go away bitter and angry at God and really reveal that I've never been born again. How do you respond to the Word of God? So here's, let me end with this. Uh, Are you a rebel at heart? Are you intentionally obeying all that the Lord has commanded? You're like, Chris, that's impossible. And my answer would be, that's right. But there's one who has obeyed it all. The true King, Jesus Christ. He obeyed it all. And He offers His obedience in the place of your sinfulness. And we put our faith in Him. And He gives us a new heart that's inclined to obedience. And by faith in Him, we can obey. And guess what? When we fail to obey, a part of obedience is confessing that and getting right with God. So see, we're even in sin, you can obey. Why? Because when you're convicted, you repent, you confess, and that's obedience. Does this make sense? Number two, are you spiritually preparing to obey all that the Lord commands and will require? You say, well, Chris, I don't know what He's going to command. That's why you got to get spiritually prepared in this book. You say, but I don't know what I'm going to face. And I don't know if I'm going to be strong enough. Well, first of all, strengthen yourself in the Lord. Number two, God knows. And God's all-powerful. And God's all-present. And He'll be there when the time comes. You get your heart ready by getting to know. Isn't this a rich chapter? This is a rich chapter. And hey... The older you get, it really doesn't get easier living for the Lord. It gets harder. Because the older you get, the more you know your weakness and the the sinfulness of this world. And the more you're like, Lord, I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle this. What's coming down the pike? But prepare yourself in Him. Does that... I don't know. This is just good stuff. I need this. And I think you do too. Partial obedience is disobedience. And when you're called on it, how you respond reveals the true condition of your heart. May we humble ourselves and be corrected and become accountable to the Lord of the Word and accountable to one another. Hey, if you see me disobeying, if you see me slipping... If you see my attitude going south, call me on it. Comfort me. Encourage me. Correct me. Because I want to obey all of His commands. Does that make sense? Let's go to the Lord. Father, we come. And we come and we are now responding to Your Word. And Lord, may we respond from a heart that is regenerated, converted, and transformed by Your grace. And by the word of grace, may we respond not with bitterness, 
and denial and anger. But Lord, may we respond with humility, brokenness, and a faith that cries out, Lord, you're my only hope. Father, may we recommit, surrender all of our lives to total obedience, knowing that only Jesus has done that, but he's done that for us if we will but place our faith in him. And Lord, when you reveal that area that we haven't surrendered, may we confess and surrender it. And when we fail to obey what we know to obey, may we be quick to confess it. And, and Lord, trust in your word that says you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for King Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love this chapter.